How y'all doing? Good. You guys seem like you just saw your best friend die in a car accident. And then you came to the living room. I hope that didn't happen to anyone. Uh, you guys all right? Seriously? Just like let out just a little something. Just like a big hello or something loud. There you go. There you go. It feels better. That feels better. That feels better. My name's Clay. I, if I haven't met you, um, I would love to meet you. Um, I am 29 years old. I turned 30 at the end of this month. And I honestly feel like my life is over. So I'm not excited about it. Um, my uh, wife is three and a half years younger than I am. And when I turn 30, she'll then be four years. You know what I mean? She'll still be 26. So she'll be four years younger than me. So she really likes that. So um, anyway, I'm glad to be here. Hey, there's two kinds of people in the world. This is a little bit of a generalization to sum it up this way, but I think you can almost sum it up this way. There's two kinds of people in this world, people that tuck their shirts and people that untuck their shirts. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I, I for a long time, was a shirt tucker. Um, I know when we leave for tonight, everybody's going to be looking at each other, how oh, you, you, you untuck your shirt, you know, or whatever. But um, it, it, honestly, I think it's true about life. Ne- never do we see this more clear in media than with um, the, the Mac and the PC guy, you know? Like, it's such an amazing stereotype of people. But it, honestly, it's, it's a pretty true generalization that there are basically, there are two ways in life to find happiness or find fulfillment or to find satisfaction in life. And some people choose one way and some people choose the other way. And it just so happens that it really does line up, I think, with tucking in your shirt. This is a little crazy and absurd, but just go with me for a second. Here's what I'm saying, all right? There are people in life who choose to find happiness and they choose to find satisfaction and fulfillment through moral conformity. I actually, I should use them on the right-hand side because they're typically more right-wing kind of people, you know what I mean? They're more conservative, more traditionalists, uh, sometimes potentially a little fundamental, but that's this category. Now, back in the day, back in the old day, this was the majority of people. A lot of people sat in this boat. But in America now, there's a growing sense of self-discovery where it's not the coolest thing in the world anymore to sit in this camp. In fact, most people your age, most people my age even, don't sit in this camp. Most people sit in the other camp, they sit in the camp of self-discovery. That's the other way that people try to find happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction in life. You got people who, in fact, Atlanta is filled with people like that, you know? How many of you are not from Atlanta and you live in Atlanta now? Yeah, there you go. You came to the big city, I would imagine. How many of you grew up in a town smaller than Atlanta? Yeah, me, me too. And people from where I'm from, they think Atlanta is like the pit of hell. I mean, they really do. They're like, I mean, I've got a friend, it's crazy. I've got a cousin who lives in South Georgia. He lives in Moultrie. And it, he, was driving, he was driving to a place that was about five hours away from here if you drove through Atlanta. But he was telling my grandmother that there is no way in Hell is what he said to her that I would drive through Atlanta because and instead he drove like seven hours out of the way just so he didn't have to drive through Atlanta because that's what people think about Atlanta. You grow up in a small town and you want to sow your wild oats, you know, so you come to Atlanta or what people in Atlanta do is you go to New York or you go to L.A. and you and you live in a big city, you know, because there's more fun to be had and you discover who you are and you live how you want to live. And then there are other people, these moral conformists who they say, no, no, no. I'm going to find what everyone around me says is right, and I'm going to live based on that. They're rule followers, you know what I mean? Anybody have a roommate who's a rule follower? It's tough. It can be tough. When dirty dishes are in the, in the sink with a rule follower, it's a hard person to be around. But we need rule followers. Here's what's crazy. 
is that these two types, although I'm painting one as this one's more favorable than the other, to be honest with you, both of these are dangerous places to be. And all of us have a mixture of both of us, of both of them. No one is the epitome of one or the epitome of the other. Now, we see this in society every now and then, like in the Mac or the PC commercials. Another place we see this, I don't know why, but when I was thinking about this, this was the first thing that popped into my head. Um, any 24 fans, it is Monday night, so... What about like used to be a 24 fan and you're not, you don't watch it anymore. Okay, six of you, that's why the show's going off the air. Well, in season two, this is crazy. This is like way back in the day. We're talking like 2K3, you know. In season two, maybe 2K4, I don't know. In season two, there was a lady on the show named Kate Warner. Anybody remember her? Blonde hair lady, you remember her? Jack actually, between seasons two and season three, had a relationship with her. Didn't go so well. They moved in together, lived together, tried it out for a while. It didn't work out, so they broke up. Nonetheless, she's one of the key characters in season number two and she has a little sister anybody remember her little sister's name marie all right she was getting married okay this is like 24 trivia all right monday night christian do you remember this season she's getting married kate warner's like the older sister and then marie's the younger sister they're both they're both blonde-headed women i mean just and and they're the most typical the uh the, the epitome of both of these people marie the younger sister is like most younger kids just like not a care in the world She's dating this guy who is a complete convict and she has no idea and she's blind to it because she doesn't care. She's just living for fun. They show her the first couple of episodes and she's going out and partying every night. It's just like living it up, living the dream. She's a complete self-discoverer. And then Kate, the older sister, is a total moral conformist. I mean, she's following the rules. She's the kind of person that like didn't move far from home. In fact, she lives right around the corner from her parents so she can keep track on everything that's going on with her parents, make sure she's cool. See, the way it works is the moral conformists, they live by this rule. They say, whatever is true and whatever is right from what people around me say is true and right, people that I love, people that I respect, tradition, my community, that's how I know what's right or wrong for me. People who are self-discoverers, people who who live how they want to live, they say, no, nobody's going to tell me what's right or wrong. I choose in my own, I choose myself what's right or wrong. And then I live based on it. And it's all to find happiness and fulfillment. But the reality is, what we're going to see tonight, is both of these camps, both of these camps are tough places to be in. And we're going to look at the story tonight. The story is notoriously called, in the Bible, the prodigal son. The story of the prodigal son. Over the next three weeks, we're going to, we're going to be sitting in the middle of this story. And I think uh, we're going to hopefully, the good news is, Brad talked about this book called The Prodigal God, which is an incredible book by Tim Keller. If you don't have it, I'd pick it up and you can read it with us while we're reading through this because a lot of the fresh points out of this, we're pulling straight from this book, which is great. So you don't have to take anything that us knuckleheads say. Knucklehead, that's like a grandfather thing to say. You knucklehead, you know. But honestly, there's some, there's some great stuff in here. Here's one of the things, here's one of the things we're going to camp on for a while. Is that these two places, these two ways to live, these two places, two ways to discover, your, to find happiness, to find fulfillment, that both of them, the Bible says, are dangerous places to live. Now this story is notoriously referred to as the story of the prodigal son, but really we could call this story the story of the two lost sons. Because this story is about a father who had two sons, and both of them fit with the stereotype of what you would think about with kids. The older son was a moral conformist. He stayed at home. He was always doing what was right, stayed close by the father's side. He was faithful and diligent and dutiful and responsible and respectful. He was everything that you would want in a child. And then the younger son was an absolute hellraiser, you know, just a complete terror, menace to society, wanted to live however he wanted to live, do whatever he wanted to do, and decided one day to go tell his father that. And these two sons we're going to find are both equally lost. 
Tonight, we're going we're gonna to hopefully, through this story, Jesus is going to redefine what it means to be sinful. He's going to redefine sin. Next week, Joel's going to be here. And Joel's going to redefine, uh, actually, Joel's going to use this story to redefine lostness. The week after that, Brad's going to talk about redefining hope or redefining a savior. But tonight, we're going to talk about redefining sin. What is sin? All right, this is, this is a big uh, Christian Bible term. But the Bible uses the word sin, bless you, speaking of church and Christian, bless you. The Bible uses the word sin to say, hey, this is the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin separate us from the Father. That ultimately, we're going to see at the end of, these sto- end of this story that these two sons are both separated from the Father because of their sin. All right, check this out. We're going to read it all together. It's found in uh, Luke 15. If you've got a Bible, you can read along. If not, we've got these massive screens. We're going to put it up there for you. Uh, in Luke 15, verse, I don't think we have verse 1, but let me just read verse 1 real quick, because this is who Jesus was talking to. He says, now the tax collectors and the, what's the word in quotations there? Does anybody have your Bible right there? The tax collectors and the sinners, yeah. Do you guys remember the, uh, was it, uh, who was it? It, was it? it wasn't David Spade, it was, um, what's the other guy from Wayne's World on Saturday Night Live a long time ago? What, who? Yeah, Dana Carvey, yeah, yeah, he did the church lady, you know, he'd always feel like, he'd always talk about the sinners, you know? I don't know if you remember that, no? All right. We'll just keep rolling, all right? Next, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So there's two groups of people. There's the tax collectors and the sinners. And then Jesus tells two stories, and then he gets to the third story, and he says this. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, this is crazy. People listen to this, and they go, no, no, no. No one would say that to a father. He said this. He said, father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of the estate. Basically, what commentators say is this. They just say that because he was asking for this, he was saying, hey, Father, give me my share of the estate. He was basically saying, you're dead to me. When you die, you're going to give me something. Go ahead and give it to me now because you're dead to me. So everybody in the crowd, when he says this, they all go, (gasps) like a huge wave of shock like rushes over people. They can't believe that anyone would ask a father this. And as astonished, as amazed as they are with the son asking the father this question, people were even more amazed at the father's response. And Jesus continues with the story. He says, and so he divided his property between them. He divided his property between them. He said, okay, I'll give you your share of the estate. And he took his property and he divided it amongst. Now, a lot of the translations say he divided his land. He divided his stuff. He divided his money. This word there, the the, the Greek term that's used there is actually bios. It's where we get the word bio, which is just life, all right? He, he, He took all of his life, which was his land. That's what his land meant to him. And he said, I'm going to take my land, my property, everything I own, everything of who I am. I'm going to take all of me and I'm going to divide it. And I'm going to give you your portion, just like you asked. And so the son, just like you know this part of the story, not long after that, the younger son got together with all he had and set off for a distant country. He left and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. I love that. He squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, this is what's cool about church is that Our church, we say, we're a church for the unchurched. That's what our church aims to be. That There's thousands of churches, hundreds of churches, lots of churches. Ah, lots. What is that? It's like my voice cracking crazy. There's lots of churches out there. But we say, hey, we want to be a church for the unchurched. We want to be a church where people who have run off in wild living, people who have run off in wild living can find a place and say, hey, there is a place where you can come back and connect with God. Because what happens is when you run off in wild living, everybody looks at you like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? 
Did you hear? You know, people, people move to it. They, they graduate from high school, move to Atlanta, and they start partying their brains out. They start living however they want to live. They start living, squandering everything and wild living. And everybody back home's talking about him, you know? Did you hear about so-and-so? Yeah. He joined a fraternity. Or, she, or she's living in an apartment with a guy, you know? Can you believe it? Or can you believe it? She's living downtown. It's not even an apartment. It's a condo without walls. Who knew they existed? In Atlanta, they're living in one. I know. Can you believe it? I know. And the little old ladies at the beauty parlor are talking about it, you know? Talking about the guy squandering everything in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to the citizen of the country who sent into the fields to feed pigs. He was feeding pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said to himself, self, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I'm going to set back and go back to my father and say to him, and he gets his speech ready. You ever done that, you know? Like I remember this one Christmas where I wrecked my car, and I had my speech ready, you know? I went in, and I was like, hey, Dad, I just need to let you know I got my girlfriend pregnant. Ha, just kidding, but I did wreck my car, you know? And then everything was cool, you know? You know what I'm saying? Like, you've been there. You know, you got, like, the bomb to drop, so you, like, drop the bigger bomb, and you're, like, kidding, so you got the smaller bomb. That's what he was doing. He was, like, getting his speech ready. He was getting his defense ready. It's a good idea to do. And so he gets it all ready. He says, this is what I'm going to say. He says, hey, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'm going to set out. And then he said, I'm going to tell my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, this father was rich. We know that he had a lot of money, all right? He was loaded. He had the bang, all right? So he had a nice pad, and he had slaves that worked for him. But he didn't say, make me like one of your slaves. He said, make me like one of your hired men. See, what the deal was is that in this, in this country, in this area, in this time of the world, if somebody went and spent their possession like this, they had to, to get back into the family to make restitution. They had to pay their debt off. So he said, Father, if you will put me back in a position, apprentice me, let me be trained, let me find a skill, then I could be like a hired man that you have around the house, and I could work off my debt. And once I've worked off my debt, once I got clean, went to rehab, say you don't want to go to rehab, and I say, yo, 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 you know, once you go to rehab, then you can come back in and, and, and work a little while and make some money to pay me back. That's what the son was thinking. This is what I could do to the father. And so he gets his speech ready. He goes back home. But while the father was still a long way off, his father saw him. And he was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him. And he said, all right, give me your defense. Now, that's not what Jesus said. And this is what was like the most shocking part of it all. He's saying this father saw him far away, and he ran after him. Do you know in, in, this, in this Near Eastern culture, the idea of a wealthy older man running was, not, was like completely uncommon. He, he, he abandoned all of his social mores and said, this is, I, 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 forget it. I, my son is coming home, and he runs after him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. And he didn't wait for him to get cleaned up. He went ahead and he kissed him. And he said, you're my son. I've been waiting on you. And in this, we see the heart of the father. And we see what most people see is like, hey, this is the largest, most incredible message. And it is of the gospel. That this is the truth about our God. That our God says, no matter where you've been, 
no matter where you've come from, no matter what you've been doing, I'm here to welcome you back. And you can't earn your way back into my good graces. No, I'm going to pay the debt for you. And I'm going to allow you to come back in. I'm going to bring you back into a relationship with me. And everybody listened and thought, no way. See, the reason why we call this series, the reason why he calls this book The Prodigal God is because of this. This word prodigal usually means wayward. But in a lot of contexts, we find the word prodigal to also mean recklessly extravagant and having spent everything. And after you read the story, you go, who's the one who was prodigal? God was the one who was prodigal. He recklessly spent everything to win the son back. He spent everything. He was recklessly extravagant so he could be in a relationship with the son. God's the one who's the prodigal God. And that's who God is. That's the heart of a loving father. That's act one. That's where we leave it, at act one. And then in act two, we learn about the story of of the older lost son. Act one, story of the younger lost son. Act two, here we go. The son said to him, Father, this is the younger son, said, Father, I've sinned against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your, to be called your son. And the father cuts him off, and he says, no, 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 no. I don't even want to hear your speech. You're back in. You don't need the speech. You don't need your defense. You're back in. But the father, uh, the father, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a, fing- put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf, and he kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. For the son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. This idea of calf, he's telling this story and Jesus was like, he put on a party with meat. And they were like, what? Meat? It wasn't like a veggie party? And he was like, no, it was a meat party. And they were like, I love meat parties. He's like, I know. It was that big of a deal. See, back in the day, they didn't throw meat parties unless there was like something to really party about. You know what I mean? Like the, the, a fattened calf was a really big deal. I mean, such a big deal that they would bring a fattened calf in and bring the whole community in. They'd be like, hey, tell everybody. I mean, put a flyer in everybody's mailbox. Like, I don't know what the deal is right now, but it's like the thing to take like a plastic bag and put a rock in it with a flyer in it and throw it in people's driveway. I get them in my driveway every day about like roofing and drywall and all this stuff. And, and the father was like, do that to everybody. Put a rock in the Ziploc and throw it in everybody's driveway because we's about to have a meat party. I'm talking a legit throwdown. Meat party. We're going to kill a fattened calf and we're going to eat. We're about to celebrate because the son has come home. Now, the older son hears this. He hears this and he goes, uh 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 uh. No, no, no. He gets upset. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field doing what? What he was supposed to be doing, right? In the field. Following the list of rules. Doing everything right. Doing everything that he was supposed to do. Following the father's orders responsibly working. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. I don't know how he heard the dancing, but he did. Evidently, the ground was pounding, you know? But he heard the music and the dancing. I don't know, whoever wrote this was like, I don't know, whatever. He heard the music and the dancing. I I guess Luke wrote this, and he was like, I think Jesus said he heard the dancing. He's the son of God, all right? If he said it, it's probably true, so he writes it down. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, hey, uh, excuse me, what's going on? It sounds like a meat party. And he's like, oh, it is. He's like, your brother has come. And he replied, and your father killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father went out and pleaded with him. Now, he's offended the father once. He offended him by not coming into the party. But he's about to offend him twice. Look at what he says. He answered the father and he said, look, you 
You know, like, that's how you do a sentence like that when there's no pronoun, but there's an implied pronoun. Look, you. He doesn't even refer to him as his father. Doesn't even pay him dignity enough to call him father. He just says, look, you. All these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And the father said, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and alive and he's now alive. He was lost and he's now found. And that's how it ends. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to the older brother? Is he going to go in the party? What's going to happen to the younger brother? Is he going to stay at home? Is he going to do the right thing? Is he going to get a job, start working faithfully? We don't know. It's like the invention of cliffhangers, you know? It's like, and we'll have the results right after this, you know? And then Ryan Seacrest goes to commercial. Like, I don't, we, don't, we don't know. That's just the way it ends. Jesus is like, that's it. That's the story. And they're like, that's the story. Give us the end. And he's like, the end doesn't matter. See, what matters is this is that you had a son who was living in wild, he had spending everything in wild living. And you got a son who's at home doing everything right. And Jesus is going to say, hey, I want to redefine sin for you. See, most people think of sin, they think of sin as this. I mean, this is like religion 101. Good people are good and bad people are bad, right? God loves the good people and the rule followers and he hates the bad people and he sends them to hell. That's what people think about religion, you know? That good is good and bad is bad. When good people do good things, God smiles. When bad people do bad things, God kills kittens, you know? Like, that's what people think about religion. And they're like, that's the deal. And God says, no, 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 no. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm about to redefine sin for you. Here's the deal. When I was a little kid, I went to this uh, Mark Godfrey basketball camp in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And um, that's right, Alicia. I can always count on you <laughs> cheering for that. And here's what, my, here's what they told me. They told me this there when I was like eight, and they told me this when I went to like this thing called seminary, which is like turbo Bible school. They define sin as this. They define sin as missing the mark. I don't know if you've ever heard of sin defined that way, that sin is missing the mark. That if you say the mark is like the, the, the Ten Commandments, you know, it's like honor your parents. Don't kill anyone, you know. Uh, go to church. That's not part of the Ten Commandments. I was like saying, here's some other ones. <laughs> That's number 11. And <laughs> anyway. Uh, do, do, don't cheat on your tests. Like, do, uh, be nice to your friends. Like, if that's the bullseye, then, then it's, like, it's like the Bible says that, like, most people think the Bible that sin is missing the mark, and that would be like, well, that was pretty good. Let me try to get one off. Oh, there we go. That's completely off. That's, that was Matt's key uh, pedal, whatever. There you go. Like, that would be like, all right, you didn't do great, but you didn't do bad. You missed the mark, okay? You honored your parents. You were nice to your parents seven times out of ten. Not bad, you know? You said, hey, mom, will you take me uh, to help me with my laundry? And she said yes. And you were like, thank you so much. And then you asked her the next time. And she said no. And you said, mom, I hate you, you know, or whatever. And you're like, ah, one for two, not bad. Pretty close, you know. But it's still missing the mark. You know, it's still not close. It's still not like not exactly it. And so I always thought, okay, Christianity to me, my religion, my faith to me was this checklist. I promise you, all through college, I just thought, honestly, and working with high school students, I see where they get this because I probably teach it uh, unintentionally. But we teach, we teach people that Christianity can be summed up in a checklist. That if you do all the right things, I just thought, okay, I don't drink and I don't smoke and I don't do drugs and I don't sleep with women and, and I, I, I'm trying to go to church, you know? All right, 
Like I'm doing everything right, you know? And I thought, okay, I'm not missing the mark. Like, what's the deal? I must not be sinful. And every now and then I would go, oh man, I missed the mark. There you go. And, and I'd be like, oh gosh, God, please forgive me because I'm missing the mark, you know? Now I'm missing it. And then I'd try again. I'd be like, oh, I'm getting closer, God. Look, I got in a Bible study. How about that? I got in a small group. Now everything's cool, right? Okay, now bless me. Now give me what I want, you know? Help me to make an A on that physics test. Oh, wait, another D? What is that, you know? Or maybe it was like that. Oh, my goodness, look at that. You're like, hey, money, you know? It's like, hey, help me out. I need a job. I need something to do. God, seriously, I land, I, I hit the mark. I didn't miss the mark. I hit the mark. I did what I was supposed to do. And I thought, oh, I, what? <laughs> I'm yelling way too much. I thought, to me, I thought that's Christianity. That, that's my faith. That it's, it can be summed up just like that. That God's saying, hey, here's the mark, and I just want you to hit it. And if you, if you miss it, then you need to be forgiven. And if you don't, then everything's cool. And that was my faith to me. And this is what's unbelievable about that. Is that in this story, Jesus is talking to tax collectors, people who everybody in the community would say, wild living, I mean, like cheaters, filthy, like probably hanging out with prostitutes. Tax collectors were listening. And then Pharisees, teachers of the law, people who were doing everything right. And Jesus said, you know what's amazing about this? The consequences of sin are affecting both. The younger brother was disconnected from the father. And the older brother, by the end of the story, is disconnected from the father. And he didn't miss the mark. Now he nailed it. Ten out of ten. He had done everything right. How could that be? How could it be that his goodness is what kept him from the Father? How could it be that he did everything right? That he followed all the right commandments? He did everything like he was supposed to do it. And he was disconnected from the Father. Jesus is saying, I want to redefine this for you because sin is not just missing the mark. No, it's way more than that because you can hit the mark and still be disconnected from the Father. Let me try to explain it to you this way. Um, If you would imagine just this time in your life when you were probably three and you were being potty trained, all right? If you would go there with me mentally, okay? It's a weird place, but go there. I've got a daughter. She's 11 months old, and it's awesome to watch her because she just uses the bathroom wherever and whenever she wants. It's an incredible, incredible way to live. Like, she'll just be playing with her stuff, you know, and all of a sudden you'll see her over there just kind of concentrating, you know, and I'm like, are you thinking about something serious? Or are you taking care of business? You know what I mean? And the next thing you know, like, you can smell it, and you're like, that is unbelievable. This is awful. Like, the cutest, most amazing little girl can produce something that is filthily, disgustingly smelly, all right? It's unbelievable. But that's the way we live, you know what I mean, until we're, like, three, and then we potty train. Well, imagine this, like, three-year-old little kid, this little boy, all right? And he's like, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of having to go find my mom every time I want to use the bathroom. This is ridiculous, you know? Like, I want to be the owner, the controller of my domain. I want to be able to use the bathroom when I need to and not get it all over myself, you know? Like, surely there is a way. And his mom tells him about this invention called the toilet. And he's blown away. He's like, what? Why didn't you tell me about this sooner? And she's like, I thought about it, but I didn't know what, if you could handle it. And he's like, I can handle the truth, mom. Give it to me. 
And so he decides one day, all right, I'm doing it. Didn't even tell his mom. He's upstairs playing in the playroom. Mom's downstairs cooking dinner. Okay, now look, in my story, I have very stereotypical uh, uh, job responsibilities for the husband and the father, uh, for the mother and the father, okay? I don't, I'm not saying that women can't work and be outside of the home. I'm just saying in my story, the mom is at home cooking dinner, okay? But if you want to replace it in your story and be like, the dad was home cooking dinner and the mom was working, that's totally fine. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to the story. You whatever you want with it, all right? So, but if you want to go there, whatever. So the mom or the dad is downstairs cooking dinner in the kitchen, and the son's upstairs playing in the playroom, all right? And he's like, I'm doing this right now. It's game on, you know? So he walks in the bathroom. He shuts the door. With his little phalanges, he, lo- he locks the door, turns the little, because he wants his privacy, you know? And he stands over the toilet. He pulls his pull-up down, and he sits on the toilet, and he takes care of his business. He stands up like a warrior who's just slayed a dragon, just defeated this toilet, just like said, absolutely, I'm demolishing potty training from here on out forever and ever. He walks back to the door, and with his little phalanges, his little fingers, his little appendages, he can't quite get the door open. He's like, stay calm. Don't freak out just yet. He looks around. He assesses the situation. He notices a bathtub, a toilet, a sink. He's like, these are going to be my friends forever, my companions for life. This is all I've got. Maybe I can make do. I don't know. And he doesn't freak out. He stays calm. And then he just un- comes unloose, comes undone, pitches a fit. You've seen him spinning around the floor, yelling, screaming, top of his lungs, going nuts. His mom hears him, and she goes, oh, goodness, little, little Tommy is in trouble. What's going on? Or the father, whoever you want to do. So runs up the stairs, <laughs> knocks on the bathroom door. He's like, Tommy, what's going on? He's like, Mom, I'm stuck in the bathroom. She's like, oh, my gosh, you know, and I'm going to do something. About it. And so she calls her husband or wife, whoever's at work, and says, hey, you got to rush home immediately. Little Tommy's in the bathroom, locked himself in the bathroom, and I don't know what to do. So the dad comes home. He goes in the garage. And he realizes there's a window right outside of the bathroom. He goes in the garage and he gets his ladder, puts it up against the side of the house, walks up the ladder slowly, one rung at a time, lifts up the window, slides in sveltly, walks over to the door, unlocks the door, flings the door open. Three-year-old little Tommy with his mom standing there, his dad standing there, the people that have loved him, cared for him, nurtured him, taken care of him. He looks at them. And then he runs right past them, right into the playroom with all of his games, all of his magic, all of his toys. The people who provided all that for him, the people who unlocked the door for him, he runs right past them, runs right to all the stuff and misses the relationship. And that is a picture of the older brother. He had done everything right. The dad said, son, everything I have is yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. But he ran right past the father. Disconnected in relationship. Wanting to do everything right. Ran right past the father, right to all the stuff. And you know what? So many times in life, that's me. I grew up in a church. I would imagine a lot of you grew up in church. If you didn't, you can understand or you can relate. For me, for the longest time, God provided a lot of things that I liked in life. Safety, comfort, peace, joy, purpose in life. And so many times, I love those things more than I love the Father Himself. And Jesus, to me, oftentimes, unfortunately, is the key to unlock all my treasure. And evidently, that's who Jesus was. That's who God was to the older brother. The older brother looked at the father and said, Father, you're the key to unlock all of my wealth, all of my status, all my reputation. You're the key to unlock all of that. 
I don't care about a relationship with you. I want the stuff. I want the reputation. I want what you provide. And Jesus in this story says, let me tell you what sin really is. Sin is loving anything more than you love the Father. You can do everything right and be disconnected. You can do everything right and feel like, God, you owe me. God, I've done everything right. You owe me the stuff I want. God's saying, you don't get it. You don't do everything right. You don't check off the checklist so that God will give you the stuff. No, God says, I am the stuff. I am your treasure. I'm not the key to unlock your treasure. I am your treasure. And that clicked for me about three years into college where I realized, God, I want you more than I want the stuff. I distinctly remember going through this hard season and I remember getting to the end of it saying, God, I don't know what I'm going through right now. I've done everything right. God, I've done it all right. I've checked off the checklist. I've lived the way you said to live and it's not working out for me. And I remember getting to the end of it thinking, you know what, oh God, I don't know what you're trying to teach me, but I'm in a place where I want you more than I want the stuff. And I feel like for me, that's when the light bulb hit. That's when the light bulb came on. And here's my question for you. Is which one are you? I mean, none of us are one or the other. We've got mixtures of both in the middle. We've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Are you the younger brother who's run off, squandered everything, and you need to come back to the father? When you do, you're going to find a father waiting there with open arms. I would imagine there's a bunch of you in here who you're in this camp. And you'd say, yeah, I've done everything right, or at least I've tried to, and I I try to keep the list. And when God doesn't give me what I want, I get pretty upset. And you might feel like God owes you. You might feel like you can control God in a sense because you've done the right things. And here's what Jesus uncovers. He uncovers for us that it's all about the motive. It's all about what's really in your heart. And maybe for you, You need to go to God and say, God, I want to repent for something besides sin. I want to repent for something besides the checklist. I want to repent for the motive in which I did all the right things. How crazy is that? That's where the older brother was. He needed to go to the father and say, hey, father, I just need to let you know, I've done all the right things for all the wrong reasons. I've tried to control you with my morality. I've tried to honor you so that you'll love me and give me the stuff that I really want. But I don't really want to be in a relationship with you. And I wonder tonight, I wonder if anybody would admit to your Father in heaven and say, I'm in that camp, that I need to repent, I need to come to God and say, God, I need forgiveness for even the motive that I've done things right with, because even that was selfish. See, both of these ways to live Moral conformity and self-discovery, both of them are selfish and self-indulgent in nature. That both of them say, I want to control this world. I want to control my life on my demands. God, I want to control you even by my own good. And maybe you've hit the mark and you're still disconnected from the Father. And if that's you, I, I, I would love for you to just pray with me. And if you're in this camp and you'd say, hey, I've been living a wild life and I'm coming back to the Father, I want you to pray with me as well. 
Here's the way we're going to pray. If you just close your eyes and bow your head, we're going to, Christian and the band, they're going to come back and play another song in just a second. But I want to pray this for all of us. If, you, if you'd say, hey, I, I really connect with the younger son, and I've been disconnected from the father because I've been living the way I want to live, you can just tell God and say, God, I, I want to come back to you. God, I, just being honest with you, I'm scared. I'm scared at the way you're going to respond. I don't know if you're honestly going to accept me. I don't know if you're honestly going to be filled with grace and forgiveness. I don't know if you're honestly going to love me in spite of what I've done. And I pray that you would just trust that God is the God that he says he is in the Bible. That God is the God who says, I'm going to allow my son to willingly die and defeat death so that I can have a relationship with you. And if you've got a little older brother in you, if you've got a little moral conformity, wanting to keep the rules, wanting to keep the law, do everything right so that you can control God, I pray that you'll just tell him that. And say, God, there are plenty of times in life where I do the right things for the wrong reasons. God, I'm not going to bring my checklist to you tonight. God, I'm just going to bring my heart to you. Say, God, I want to know you. I want to be connected with the Father. God, and I want to honor you because you love me. I don't want to honor you so that you'll love me, so that you'll give me all the things I want. I want to live for you so that you'll love me. God, in the end, God, I pray that all of us would go home tonight, that we would, as we're going to sleep, that we would think about the fact that you are our treasure, that you're who we meant to live for, God, you're not the key to unlock all the stuff we want, but you are our treasure. God, I pray that we would love you as that. We live for you as that.